just get this impression of God kind of pulling us close to his chest today. So as we open these scriptures, Father, um, help us to hear your heartbeat. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. If you have a Bible... We're going to be just about all over the place today, but if you'd like to anchor yourself in Matthew 11, you could do that. Starting a new series this morning on celebration. When you think of heaven, when you think of heaven, what comes to mind? When you think of heaven... What comes to mind? I, I once heard a gospel presentation that was given to children, and we were in, in downtown Warren at a free event, and it was obvious to me that a number of the kids were coming from poverty. And the gospel presentation landed with, if you believe in Jesus, you'll go to heaven where the streets are paved with gold. That struck me as unnecessarily manipulative and also kind of pointless because what does it help you now if you're a kid in poverty that heaven's streets are paved with gold some of us look forward to heaven because we'll be reunited with those we love and others look forward to heaven because it will mean the aches and pains of our bodies and minds that they will cease and these are certainly good reasons to hope after heaven it's not necessarily the, the central thing that heaven is about, though. Uh, for a lot of people, here's what comes to mind when they think about heaven. It's this far side cartoon, and there's an angel. Uh, he's got his halo. By the way, when you get to heaven, you won't grow wings. Um, and he's sitting on a cloud, and his thought bubble says, I wish I'd brought a magazine. See, a lot of us worry that when we get to heaven, there's just not going to be all that much to do, that we're just going to kind of spend forever doing something and if you're not a christian in the room and quite frankly even if you are what about that is enticing <laughs> what about that is exciting what about that would make you say i'm going to go ahead and rearrange my entire life to achieve the sitting on a cloud board forever right when we think of heaven when we think of eternity we tend to get it all wrong and here's how I know. When Jesus came, he didn't tell us that heaven is an eternity spent doing nothing. When Jesus came, he didn't promise streets paved to gold. To be honest with you, read everything that Jesus says about heaven, and he will not promise you the ends of your aches and pains, nor will he promise you being reunited forever with those you love. And we want to listen to what Jesus has to say on heaven because as far as we can tell, he's the only one that's lived there and come down to tell us about it. Amen. When we think of heaven, we get it all wrong. What Jesus comes to tell us about heaven is that heaven is primarily a party. 
it, in story after story, in teaching after teaching, in parable after parable, Jesus compares heaven to a celebration linking the repentance of sinners to parties thrown by fathers and shepherds, connecting the kingdom of God to weddings and feasts. Jesus' first miracle, his first public miracle, was at a wedding. It is a celebration in the presence of God, for God, about God, forever, is what heaven is. Jesus, the authority on what heaven is like, comes and tells us that heaven is a celebration. So, when we celebrate, Jesus says, we are experiencing a foretaste of forever. This morning, we're kicking off, I think it's like 10-week, a 10-week series on celebration, right? I once did like six weeks on fasting. So what I'm trying to do is maybe counterbalance a little bit. See what I'm doing? <laughs> 10 weeks on celebration as a spiritual practice. And this morning, we're going to do uh, what those of us who are raised in church are call a sword drill, a sword drill. We're going to be jumping all over the place in the Bible. In fact, I want to show you six scenes from across the Bible from beginning to end to trace that theme of celebration. So let's get ready for our sword drill. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2. Real easy, right at the front. It'll get weird later on. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Just verses 15 through 17. Scene 1. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. God creates mankind. He places them in a place of rich provision. He places the first man and the first woman in the garden and he walks with them in the cool of the day. They are glad to be together and they are placed in what is essentially an all-you-can-eat buffet, right? That's right. The Garden of Eden is just like Golden Corral. I mean, have y'all ever been to a Golden Corral? People are having fun at Golden Corral. And let me tell you why. They have mac and cheese. They have chicken. They have steak. They have lobster. They have ice cream machines that you could just put the ice cream on top of all of your plate, right? People at Golden Corral are having a good time. Uh, and, and, and it's a party. Our created state, the Garden of Eden, is one of joyful celebration. But like in one of those movies where something goes wrong at the party and somebody like, the record, that happens in the next chapter over in Genesis chapter 3. That's our second scene. They're placed in this all-you-can-eat buffet, like with an asterisk at the end, right? They're placed in an all-you-can-eat buffet, except there's like one corner of the buffet that they're not allowed to eat from, right? They can have anything they want ice cream, steak, ice cream on steak. They just can't eat that one dish at the end of the buffet. And of course, what do we do? We eat at the part of the buffet that we're not allowed to eat from, and the celebration turns sour. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, Adam and Eve are convinced to eat of the one dish they're not allowed to have, and it says in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 9, the woman was convinced she saw that the tree was beautiful 
and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. That, by the way, is how sin works. It puts something in your eye that looks good. And it appeals to your desires. It looked good, and she wanted it, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing. Now let me just argue about um, biblical interpretation with you just for a minute. The Hebrew construction, the Old Testament, which we're reading from, was originally written in Hebrew. And the Hebrew words used for when the cool of the evening breezes were blowing and the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, that's verse 8. The Hebrew words could imply cool evening breezes, but that same word is also used for the approach of a storm. And so is it that God just showed up when the cool evening breezes were blowing, or is it that God came rushing in on a thundercloud to see what had gone wrong? with the party that he had started. The cool evening breezes were blowing. The man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. See, what, if it's just a cool breeze, why would you hide? If it's a thunderstorm, let's get out of the way. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees, and the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Genesis is telling us the story of the party coming to a screeching halt, right? As Adam and Eve are kicked out of the party, where they are sent from the garden to toil and labor and die. Generations later, Adam and Eve's descendants, God's people, are enslaved in Egypt, and then they are delivered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and what we come to know as the Passover, and Kristen's going to be unpacking that for us next week, so be praying for her. They find themselves on the other end of slavery at the foot of a mountain called Sinai, and the God, and, and the God of the universe lays out a covenant with them. He, the author of life, says, this is how you, who like death so much, can live in a relationship with me. He builds covenant stipulations. And there's this interesting piece of the law that doesn't seem like it fits with our conception of the law. See, our conception of the law Israel were give, was given is like a lot of very strict rules about what to wear and how to plant your crops and how to build your houses, not to boil a goat in its mother's milk, all sorts of these interesting things. But look at, Levit look at Leviticus chapter 23. Look at Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus, which is the book that when you start reading the Bible from beginning to end, probably has knocked you out, right? Look at Leviticus 23 verses 1 through 4. Yahweh said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. These are the Lord's appointed festivals. Interesting, which you are to proclaim as official days for holy assembly. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day of complete rest, an official day for holy assembly. It is the Lord's Sabbath day, and it must be observed wherever you live. Verse 4, in addition to the Sabbath, these are the Lord's appointed festivals. The official days for holy assembly that are to be, wait for it, celebrated, at their proper time each year. In the midst of long legal codes that cover violence and sexuality and all sorts of other elements of life together, the Lord commands his people to throw a party. They're to do it once every seven days. 
in any given calendar year, Leviticus 23 lays out seven different festivals. And just to give you a clue to where we're going, we're going to unpack each of those festivals over the next 10 weeks. Wait for this. Once every seven years, they were to have a basically year-long party. And once every 50 years, they were to have a really, 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 really great party for the whole year. We don't think of the law of Moses as like, let's have some fun. But here in the center of the book of Leviticus, the Lord lays out these regular times in which God's people, in wherever they are, in whatever circumstance they find themselves in, are to go back to Golden Corral. To go back to Eden for a day, for a couple of days, sometimes for a week. When God calls people into relationship to himself, he calls them to be a people who celebrate, who bring the celebration with which the world began, to bring that celebration back into their lives and stories. And these celebrations point back to Eden, and we're going to especially see that when we get to the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? Because there they're commanded to build booths out of leaves, right? It's build a little Eden in the wilderness. Um, it's not just a look back to Eden. It is also a, a look forward to heaven, to eternity. Look with me at Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. person who gets there first gets a $5 Starbucks gift card, by the way. Oh, Len had it. Len had it. <laughs> okay, who else had it then? Who, oh, okay, Kristen had it. Kristen got it. Oh, was Jairus first? All right, well, we, we bought a mess of gift cards, and we actually have them on the property, so you both get a gift card today. See, we're trying to, be, we're trying to have fun. <laughs> that church has fun. They're so relevant. Anyway, okay, Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, starting in verse 6. Some of your translations will say in Jerusalem. Others will say on this mountain. Bible nerd comment. Jerusalem is a mountain garden. Eden was a mountain garden. Okay? In Jerusalem, the Lord of Heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a clear, it will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine. I would just dying to know how the Baptists in the room try to figure that one out, but there it is. It was with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will move, remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and his people, the Lord has spoken. Through Isaiah, the Lord promises a coming feast. A forever celebration, a delicious banquet, where death's gloomy cloud is, celebration, is swallowed up forever. Celebration is therefore a foretaste of forever. And Jesus arrives to get the party started. Jesus arrives to get the party started. Matthew 11 first person there gets a $5 Starbucks gift card. Okay, Jairus is like, Jairus is really wanting to make sure he wins. Yes, okay. All right. Um, love it. Matthew 11, verses 18 and 19. Jesus says, for John didn't spend his time eating and drinking, and you say he's possessed by a demon. 
The Son of Man, Jesus talking about himself, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. One of the biggest critiques of Jesus' ministry, one of the biggest critiques of Jesus' ministry was that he ate and drank too much. Somebody in the back is like, hallelujah. You know what I mean? I knew I, knew I was like Jesus. Um, the biggest critiques of Jesus' ministry was that he ate and drank too much, one, and the second critique was who he was eating and drinking with, with whom he was eating and drinking, right? Uh, tax collectors and sinners. Jesus, among many things, was a guy who knew how to party. Jesus knew how to party. In the Gospel of Luke, you can barely turn a page before you find Jesus sitting down to eat with somebody again. By the way, those are the, that's what we're looking at in the fall groups, is all of the times that Jesus has a meal. Go home this week, just read the Gospel of Luke. If you read it cover to cover, like in one sitting, it would take you about a half hour, 45 minutes. And, and you will find over and over and over and over again, Jesus eats. And when he's not eating, he's telling stories about eating. I mean, this is a God that I can follow. You know what I'm saying? Um, Jesus comes and throws a party. And that makes sense. He's a faithful Jew. So his whole life has been spent celebrating the festivals outlined in Leviticus 23, plus the other festivals that have emerged by this time, including Purim. Right? Jesus knows how to party, and he's trying to tell us about something about the nature of forever, which we finally see clearly in our sixth and final scene, which is in Revelation 19. Revelation 19 tells us what heaven is like. And it is not sitting on a cloud. Revelation 19 Starting in verse 6. I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. Heaven is a wedding reception. And listen, we're from the valley. If there isn't a cookie table, we will be quick to provide one. Amen? Um, uh, heaven is a wedding reception where Jesus, the groom, and his people, the bride, us, the bride of Christ, come together as one. And, and this is just another footnote for today that I've been thinking about. We were with Paul and Ellie McConaughey. Uh, you, some of you know those are friends of ours this week. And Paul pointed out that we really like to bash the church right? Um, you can get a lot of street cred on that. I've gotten a lot of street cred on that. But saying to Jesus, I like you, I just don't like the church, is like saying to your best friend, I like you, I just kind of don't dig your fiance. How do you think that's going to go? Right? Um, heaven, in verse 9, actually an angel says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And Isaiah 25 told us what we're going to have. Choice meats, the clearest of wine, and probably some golden corral ice cream. You know what I mean? From beginning to end, from beginning to end, as we look at the scriptures, 
we find that God loves a party. From beginning to end, the Bible teaches us that God loves a party. A party to which everyone is invited. A party to which anyone who would come would receive an invitation written in the blood of Jesus. Whose death and resurrection will be the source of our celebration forever. This week we're beginning this series on celebration as a spiritual practice, as an essential task to practicing the way of Jesus. Hear me say that again. Celebration is an essential task to practicing the way of Jesus. I want to take the moments that we have left and just explain why. Why? A few of our leaders were in Fort Wayne, uh, Indiana for a discipleship and mission conference this spring, and some of them had the courage to look at me and say, we are not good at celebrating. And that is true. The kind of leadership I bring is what's the next thing, and not just what's the next thing, what's the third thing after that, and how do we get there as fast as we can, okay? Um, and so the comment was kind of made, not kind of made, the comment was made, Mike Frisk, one of our elders, said to me, we do a thing and we've barely moved on to the next thing, and we've barely finished it before we moved on to the next thing, and there's no celebration of having done the first thing, right? And so um, hearing that, we said we're going to spend the fall leaning into celebration, leaning into celebration. And I think our lack of celebration is reflective of my giftedness and kind of my leadership and where I drive us, but I also think it's reflective of our, of our culture at large, where when we do celebrate, we're not really celebrating the lasting things, right? Paul says, like, think on whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, right? We don't tend to celebrate whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is pure. What we celebrate is like that which is temporary, for example, like a Browns win, because you know that's like going to last eight seconds before. Um, um, <laughs> uh, but what we tend to celebrate are things that are not lasting, right? Even in our cultural moment, we're kind of celebrating like the cause of the day, right? We kind of love the idea of the kingdom without the king, so we want women and people of color to be released and set free, but we don't want that done under like the leadership of Jesus, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of celebrating that is happening in our lives, but it's not necessarily celebrating as a spiritual discipline. We're, and even then, if we do stop and celebrate, it's really hard to stop and celebrate because we're running in 17,000 different directions at any one time, and so to schedule out like a birthday party for our kid requires like 10 emails, five text chains, like and three reschedules to just even do that, right? And so in the midst of like kind of celebrating the wrong things, in the midst of like the pace of our life, there's not a stopping to celebrate the ways that God has provided for us. There's not a pausing to celebrate God's protection or God's presence. The scriptures say that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. But if we have to spend 20 minutes aligning our schedules to even make that happen, we probably won't ever get there. And this is why Richard Foster, who is like one of the authorities on spiritual disciplines, 
says that celebration is a spiritual discipline. He says that celebration is a spiritual discipline just like reading the Bible and praying and fasting and going to church. In fact, he says that celebration is the end point of all of the disciplines. That the, cel- that the discipline of celebration is birthed from all of our spiritual practices and is united in the discipline of celebration. In our busyness, we have forgotten that celebration is a vital way to connect with God. Think again about Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23 is in the midst of a long set of legal codes where the author of life is telling people who love death, this is how we're going to be in relationship together. This is the God of the universe saying, if you want to approach me, this is the posture and practice by which you're going to approach me. And included in that is celebration. He calls for appointed festivals and holy assemblies. He actually says that the practice of celebration is a place in which we meet God more deeply. Nathan Foster writes, uh, Richard Foster's son, Nathan Foster says, the spiritual discipline of celebration leads us into a perpetual jubilee of the spirit. We are rejoicing in the goodness and greatness of God. As St. Augustine once said, the Christian should be an alleluia from head to foot. The spiritual discipline of celebration, finding ways to celebrate who God is in us and for us and in others and for others, it's a vital way of connecting with God and encountering the presence of the Holy Spirit. When things are falling apart, when things aren't going well, the spiritual discipline of celebration calls us to look for good even when things are so very hard. Don't let a generational pull into authenticity about how bad things are all the time rob you of the discipline of celebration that says, even in the midst of the wilderness, even in the midst of the desert, even when we are hard-pressed on every side, that we are not crushed, right? That there are still ways to celebrate even in the midst of the difficulty. That is why it's, by the way, a discipline right? Because there are a lot of moments, I I very rarely go through my life saying, I can't wait to fast this week. There are a lot of moments in my life where I don't feel like celebrating. But even the psalmist says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Celebrations in the midst of personal difficulty can be one of the most powerful prophetic rebukes to our suffering. It can be a vital reminder that this is not our forever. Like this hard thing, this walking through the valley of the shadow of death will not be forever. Um, And that's why, and I've shared this with you, I think before, but a few of our leaders in our church were like under enormous spiritual warfare, 10 things were going wrong. And I said, okay, we're just gonna have a Psalm 23 dinner. What is a Psalm 23 dinner? We're just gonna eat food. We're just gonna laugh. We're just gonna share what we're grateful for. And that's it. And we're not going to have like a deep counseling session on how to fix your problems, right? Like sometimes you need to stop, don't you? At least I do. Like kind of thinking about the thing nonstop. I just need to like stop and like in a really healthy way, go eat a piece of cake. And, and, and honestly, let's be real, going and eating a piece of cake like with other people is probably more socially acceptable than like me eating a whole cake, <laughs> right? Um, by myself. Um, um, uh, 
The spiritual discipline celebration is a call to celebrating even when things are hard. And the discipline of celebration is how we put the words of Paul into practice. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Now that whole verse says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And for most of my life, I thought mourning with those who mourned was harder. That is not true. It is way harder to rejoice with those who rejoice when you go to a baby shower when you're struggling with infertility. It is way harder to go to a it is way harder to go to a bridal shower when you're struggling with singleness. Right? It is really hard to go to your friend's 50th anniversary party when your spouse has been gone 20 years. Right? Rejoicing with those who rejoice is much harder. I'm always reminded of a scene, I think it's in Bridesmaids, which by the way is a movie I recommend that you do not watch. So <laughs> do, it, do as I say, not as I do in this. But the, one of the main characters is asked to be a maid of honor in her friend's wedding and she like says yes while like cry laughing and drinking a whole bottle of wine, right? Like that's how rejoicing with those who rejoice feels, right? Like, yes, it's so great. Let me just get my flask, right? Um, this is how we feel about celebration. And I, and I even think um, as a spiritual family, uh, what we tend to do, I've noticed, is pull our punches on the good things that are going on in our lives especially when somebody else, like in the prayer time, shares a hard thing, right? Um, so I don't want to share, like, the good thing that's happening because this person, this person, and this person are, are having a hard time, right? Um, I think that actually reveals a little bit of pride, right? Because even sharing a celebration can be vulnerable sometimes, right? Like, it reveals, like, I'm not going to... I'm going to hide my bushel under, I'm going to hide my light under a bushel or something. Um, and even in our spiritual family, like the oversight team, we receive your prayer requests um, that go on the digital communication card and in person. And we love praying for those things. Um, it's kind of a bummer a lot of the time, just to be honest, especially because what we are also really good at doing is sharing the problem, but not the solution. Or like we're, we're good at sharing the conflict and not the resolution. Right, so like somebody will share a prayer request, I'm really praying into it, and unless I do the work of like, is everything okay? Like there's not always like a, a feedback loop of, oh, by the way, the Lord did this in my life, right? This is how we saw the Lord show up. Please give us your prayer requests. Please, it is my joy to be bummed out by you week after week. <laughs> um, it is my joy. What's that? Am I digging a hole? Steph says I'm digging a hole. <laughs> Please keep sharing those prayer requests with us, but could you layer on the resolution that came about? Do you see what I'm saying? Or feel free to just tell me something good that happened that week, right? Feel free to tell us, like, I got a new job. I successfully parented this week. My kids are still alive after I almost wanted to kill them, you know? Um... <laughs> um <laughs> The discipline of celebration calls us, this is why it's a discipline, because we're called to look for the good even in the bad. And we're called to share in others good even when it's bad for us. 
finally, the, so if it's a way that we connect with God, if it's a way that we live more fully into spiritual family together, it is also a key, key element uh, to counteract our tendency to be uh, what St. Teresa calls gloomy saints. St. Teresa calls, St. Teresa once said, uh, God deliver me from gloomy saints, right? Nathan Foster says, perhaps the most important benefit of celebration is that it saves us from taking ourselves too seriously. It is an occupational hazard of devout folk to become stuffy bores. Celebration delivers us from such a fate. It adds a note of gaiety, festivity, and hilarity to our lives. One of the greatest obstacles for many of our non-Christian friends and families, family members, one of the greatest obstacles for them crossing the line of faith is that it appears to them that we're not allowed to have fun anymore once we start to follow Jesus. It feels like Okay, so you're mean. If I start following Jesus, I just have to be like serious, boring, and sad all the time. We have forgotten that the kingdom of God is a party. We have forgotten that Jesus spent most of his time evangelizing people, not over a tract or of a Bible study or an apologetics debate or in our world, a podcast about this, that, or the other. Jesus spent most of his time evangelizing people over food and wine. Tony Campolo has a great book that came out in 1990. It's got the most vintage cover. Pam, Pam Cooper told me it exists. It's called The Kingdom of God is a Party. Get excited for when we start talking about the harvest feasts and how the core message of those feasts is we give 10% of our income to keep the party going. So if you suddenly have something to do on October 9th, I understand. Um, <laughs> Tony Campolo writes in his book, The Kingdom of God is a Party. He says, whenever Christians party, they provide a foretaste of what is to come. Whenever they celebrate with laughter and song, they evangelize. They send out the message that the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of God is a wonderful party. We have forgotten that the most powerful missional tool that we have as a way to connect with God. Uh, we have forgotten that the most powerful missional tool we have, that one of the most powerful ways of connecting with God, one of the most powerful ways of being spiritual family together is celebration. And so y'all, we're going all in. Okay, we're going all in on celebration. Here's what we have learned about you, your leaders, is you like immersive experiences. So we're going to go for it this time with some immersive experience. So over the next few weeks, you're going to see in your email and on social media requests for worship songs that are particularly celebratory to you, right? And we're going to build out a celebration playlist, right? Um, uh, on the inward, you see this uh, prayer wall at the back. Um, it says, tell me something good. I would love to see that wall by the end of this 10 weeks, like there to be no space of just the good stuff. So you come in on a Sunday morning, something good happened, write it down. Share that with us in your digital communication card. Share that with us in the card in your front pocket. We want to know. Here, here's my challenge for all of us too, maybe as a personal thing. And this just crossed my mind this morning. Haven't workshopped this with anybody. I would, I would encourage you to get a jar and put it on your kitchen table and every day or at least a couple times a week to write something good that happened that day and stick it in the jar. 
This series will end at about Thanksgiving. Wouldn't it be really exciting to like at the end of November or maybe even on, hey, Thanksgiving Day, to pull out all of those things and say, look at all of the good things that God did in us. Look at all the things that are worth celebrating, right? Because we tend to like, we just lose track, right? Because the heavy things weigh far more in our hearts and that's okay. So we just need to be more disciplined about kind of those other pieces, having the, the celebration jar. And then here's the last part. I want to challenge everybody in our spiritual family to have someone that is far from Jesus into their home for a meal. And then I will provide you a tract with which you can share the gospel with them. <laughs> so. No. Just to spend time together, to open your home, open your table. Um, and then the other piece that we're going to be doing and this, is a, this was the team's idea. We're going to try at the end of our small group semester, which will be the full week before Thanksgiving, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, Tuesday, November 15th. So it's actually two Tuesdays before Thanksgiving. Yes. Two, on Tuesday, November 15th, we'll, we'll debate that date in a minute. Um, <laughs> welcome to this marriage moment. Um, um, we're going to have a dinner for all of our small groups to come together at the end and celebrate kind of what happened in our groups, right? Because what we do is we do our groups and then they end and we just move on to the next group. And anybody can come. If you don't go to a group, you can still come. We're going to have food and just celebrate. But we're going to tag at the end of our small group semester a celebration dinner just about what God did through the groups. See what I'm doing? Because we want to have this culture of celebration in our church where we're sharing good things and hard things. We're actually pretty good at sharing hard things. Maybe a better way to say the prayer quest thing is we're, we're really, really good at sharing the hard things. Let's counterbalance by getting really good at sharing good things too, right? We want to go all in. And this is where I want to leave you this morning. I want to leave you with this painting uh, that is famous in Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, so what you see there, uh, this is actually an icon. It was painted in the 15th century by Andrei Rublev. And what you see is you see three people at a table right? And the angle of the painting, it almost kind of feels like you're sitting at the table, doesn't it? It feels like you're in the fourth chair, gathering with these three people. This painting is called the Trinity. This painting is called the Trinity. It's a picture of the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit having a meal together, having a celebration, and inviting us into it. See, the reason that we're talking about celebration is because when we celebrate, we're not just having a foretaste of forever, we're actually participating in the very nature of the life of God right? God who is one God who exists eternally in three co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Having this celebration together, Larry Crabb, uh, this won't be on the screen, Larry Crabb says, kind of writing from the fa God the Father's perspective, did you ever stop to ask why I made everything? Did you ever stop to ask why I made everything? Why my spirit, my son and I created the stars, moon, and planets? Did you ever stop to ask why we made paradise on earth? The three of us were making preparations to throw a party. 
to invite others to a dance, to the dance we've been enjoying since before time began. But there were no others to invite. So at a family council, we decided to create people, human beings just like you, whom we could enjoy as they enjoyed us and all the beauty we've made. Did you ever stop to ask why we made everything, he says? The three of us were making preparations to throw a party. If you hear nothing else today, hear God's invitation to join the celebration that began long before time was measured and will continue forever. Amen.